we're going to look at Psalm 15. I was out for my morning run this morning, and um, I always do my Sunday morning preaching run. It gets to, um, the mind working there, and I give a bit of a trailer for what I'm going to teach later on. So it was a wonderful time doing that. Uh, beautiful as you catch the sunrise, and then it, as it creates this um, beautiful colors on the hills where I live, and I thought about this great privilege to teach you from Psalm 15, the title, Who Qualifies for Worship? Who Qualifies for Worship? That's a, a relevant question, isn't it? I mean, this psalm is going to inform us and remind us of the standards for those who call themselves genuine worshipers. Now, you're going to hear that word uh, repeated a number of times through this message, genuine worshipers, qualified worshipers. And that really is a question for life. Are you qualified to worship the living God? Who is worthy, um, as the psalmist writes, to come into God's tent? Who is worthy to come unto God's hill? In this psalm, a Davidic psalm, that we can understand better God's standards for ourselves so that we can strive to be what God intends for us and live a life that is holy and pleasing and honoring to the Lord. Now, what type of psalm is this? It's a liturgical psalm, which means it's a, it's a song that's written for the uh, public worship. And so as, let me give you a bit of the setting, um, that most likely the Levitical priests will be asking this question about who can come into the tent of the Lord and who can come up to Zion. And the people of God would have thought to themselves, yes, who in fact is worthy? Am I worthy? Am I a qualified worshiper? And we are this morning going to look at the answer to that question. And hopefully as we answer that question, it will also cause some sense of uh, self-examination even. To be introspective for a moment and ask, God, am I truly qualified to come into your tent to worship on your hill? Um, Luther says that this psalm strikes against outward show because people can, in fact, put in a show, can't they? Um, some of us, before we knew the Lord, we knew how to speak church language. We knew church dress and we knew church culture. And we may even say that we knew church morality, but that really wasn't the true us. Um, we were still morally flawed. And we did it out of a sense of maybe obligation to another, maybe a loved one. Uh, maybe it was simply because we were so prideful that we wanted to put on this sort of guise of a person that is holy, that is righteous, that is good. But that truly wasn't us. And this is in part why Luther says that it, it strikes against outward show. A person that is truly serious must look at the answer to that question and say, hmm, do I qualify? Do I add up? The style is interesting, as I always do reading and rereading and rereading and listening to the psalm itself, but it's fairly easy to pick up on. You see a set of negative, positive, negative, positive. What do I mean by that? Notice verse two. He says, those who walk with integrity, who work righteousness and who speak truth. So we see three positives. And then notice the negatives in verse three does not slander, does 
nor does evil, nor takes up a reproach. So now another set of three that are here uh, negative. And then notice verse four um, here in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. He honors those who fear, fear God and he swears to his own hurt. Another set of three. And then in verse five, notice he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe. He who does these things will not be shaken. It sort of breaks away here. So it's a two and one. Because in the end, we have a promise. And this is what the text is telling us. So the question is asked, oh, Lord, who may abide in your attendant and who may dwell on your heel? And then the psalmist in it from verses two to five B answers the question. And then in five C, he gives a promise. And that really is the outline itself. And I'll give that to you as we move through this psalm. The question of qualified worshipers or the question for qualified worshipers. Uh, verse one, and the virtue of qualified worshipers, that's verses two to five B. And notice what they do. They strive for a moral standard. They avoid offending. They maintain a moral standard and they avoid exploitation. So they strive, they avoid. It says, I believe the scripture is telling us they would maintain and then they avoid. And then the last part is verse five C the promise to qualified worshipers. So we have what a question that is going to be posed to those that would come to the tent of the Lord that would come to worship on the hill of the Lord. And then now the answer to the question is sort of a Q and a, if you will, here is the answer, the virtue, what virtue is demonstrated by those who are qualified to worship the Lord. And then uh, there's a promise. If you would live this way, God says, I have a promise for you. Now, when we think about this outline, there's some questions in the text itself. There's some questions that we need to answer. And there are five questions, not limited to these five, that will help us think through the passage. And I will answer them either directly or indirectly as we work through it. Number one, who is asking the questions? Oh, I told you a bit ago who may be um, asking this question. And what are the virtues here? And are the, is this list comprehensive? Is this a comprehensive list? And notice, if you will, one interesting connection is uh, in answering that question, he gives 10 virtues, 10 virtues. That sounds a bit like the book of Exodus. And it sounds like the 10 commandments in one sense is sort of a, a 10 principles for those who would be true worshipers. But a question comes up as well, um, because remember last week we looked at Psalm 14 and we were reminded that man, in fact, can be wicked. And God is looking on society and saying, is there a righteous one? Is there someone that does good? And he says, no, not even one. So number three, how does one account for human failure? I mean, you look at this list and you say, wait a minute, if these are the qualifications for worshiping in God's tent and on his hill, I fall short in numbers three and five and eight. What am I to do? And we want to answer that as well. And then the fourth question we want to uh, wrestle with is what is the implication of the promise? This promise that is stated in verse five C where he says, he who does these things will not be shaken. 
So what's the implication of that thought? And that's something we should always do when we wrestle with the word of God. We ask ourselves a question. Okay, I see a truth, but what is the implication for my life? And then a fifth question, what is the relationship to Psalm 14? As we spent our time there last week and then ended on this note of looking at contrasting lives uh, we look for a moment, if you remember, at Voltaire in his uh, humanistic pen, if you will, that he thought was going to destroy Christianity, but God would have the last laugh, if you will, because the Geneva Bible Society would build a depot over the very spot that he threatened to kill off Christianity. Or a Thomas Paine in his secularism. But yet he is a man who at the end of his life realized that he had made a horrible decision. And we contrasted him with other godly saints that died well. And even the question from last week is for all of us, will you die well? Um, Boy, recently memorial services, and this has come up in a number of conversations and dear people that uh, we would say from a human standpoint went too soon. I mean, our dear cat, you say to yourself, what's that was too soon? A friend, Mark Rodriguez, only 53, you say that was too soon. And so in the last week, I've been to those services. And even yesterday, uh, a dear professor of mine from the Master Seminary, Dr. James Roscoe, and uh, went to be with the Lord. But he, the Lord granted him 86 years. And one asked that that question, even before him was um, Jay Adams, 91 years. So, Lord, why 48 and why 91? Why 53 and 86? And we don't understand these things always, do we? Perhaps we should say rarely do we understand them. But all that I know, all four of them died well because they died with the Lord. That is dying well. And even someone like a Dr. Roscoff, I attended his memorial service yesterday and uh, he had a great influence on my life. And I'm even privileged now to teach one of the classes that I sat under him 30 years ago. What a privilege. And I got up and spoke a little bit about that and greeted his two daughters and his grandsons and say, what an honor it is to sort of take up the mantle from Dr. Roscoff, a godly man. And I mention him often, even in my classes. And he was at 86. Do you know what he was still working on? Uh, was books. He had manuscripts surrounded and he was in living. He was in assistant care and he's still doing the work of the ministry. Until his dying breath. And someone that had communicated with him recently said he was he was working on 11 books. That's Dr. Roscoe for you. And I had a, a, a wonderful story, and I'll share it with you. I didn't share it at that time because I just shared other things. Well, Dr. Roscoe, two earned doctorates, two earned doctorates. And he was a big ASU fan, football fan, knew everything, knew everyone's stats uh, on the football team, could tell you all the plays that happened. And, but he was a stickler. He, I learned that he had been in journalism since he was about 12 years old. So guess what happened when you turned in a paper to Dr. Roscoe? <laughs> Yes. Thank you. You say, wait a minute. I don't remember typing this in red, a red font. So something's gone wrong here. 
I would share with my wife one occasion where if you try one, because one gentleman, he shared it was at the seminary, too, where he worked so hard and so hard and so hard. And he got a B plus and he says, Dr. Roxup, I worked so hard. How could this be? And Dr. Roscoe, in his endearing way, he says, oh, I would be glorious to get a, a B plus. As long as you did your all. And that's, that's how you would say it, right? As long as you did your all. His voice would do that. And there was one occasion I w- had a class, Old Testament survey. And I'd done this paper, put in the work. And I sent it off to Dr. Roscoe. But the problem is this. Um, I had edited it. But I didn't save the edited version. Oh, yes. Thank you. (laughs) So imagine when you edit it, it's still red. Imagine an unedited version, right? So unedited version, sent it off. I got it back. I thought, this is unbelievable. Um, So I get the paper back. Dr. Roscoe, I'm not asking for any change of grade, but this is what happened, just so you know. And he says, okay, Carl. And I said, but I'm looking for this grade in the semester. And he said, well, if you're going to get that grade, you have to get, wow. And I thought, is that even possible in your class? So I studied and studied and studied. I turned in my paper and I got it back and there were two pages, red free. Yeah, two pages. No, no, there were a hundred pages. No, just, no, it was like four pages, but I'll never forget. I still have the paper. I tell you, I tell you this because at the top, he put this note. He said, alliteration inspired and he put a little smiley face. <laughs> he was that sort of man. I still have that paper from many moons ago. And that reminded me of his sort of endearing spirit. How you die. Well, how you die will be determined on how you worship or if you can worship. And if you are a worshiper, are you qualified to worship? So we need to answer these questions. So let's look at our first consideration here. The question for qualified worshipers, verse 1. The question for qualified worshipers. And this would have been posed to those who would honor the Lord through their place of worship. They wanted to come and honor God to say, I want to be in his tent. I want to be on his holy hill and then present it to them. Well, Who can, in fact, dwell here? Who can abide here? And that really is the question for life. That is the question for all of us. Are we qualified to be worshipers of God? And Alan Ross, um, Old Testament scholar, says this. Most likely the question is posed by a Levitical gatekeeper who had the task of reminding worshipers of the requirements and not in the sense like you're going through a TSA line that he's asking it, but probably even it would have been singing it perhaps to say who is worthy to come into his tent, who is worthy to go on his holy hill. And as you're coming and approaching it, the people would have heard that and thought, yes, I am striving for that Oh, no, I have something against my brother. I need to make things right. And then even perhaps there's an offering that I need to present before the Lord. And they would have been interrogated by this question, not only from the Levitical gatekeepers, but they should have been more importantly interrogated by their own conscience. Because if we don't pay attention to our conscience, then what will we have, right? 
A person can present a question to us, but unless we allow that question to find itself in our heart and then we present to our own self, we counsel ourselves with deep, abiding, serious questions, unless there is some sense of self-examination, then we can pass through the gates of security, if you will, and not truly be a qualified worshiper. You know, in my travel, I've been through a number of airports, and there's some that I really enjoy visiting, actually. And they're fun places. And I was visiting one airport, um, oh, about a year ago before COVID hit, and I got to the end, and as some of the airports at the end, you go through security, and there's a, a larger desk area where perhaps the manager is there, and based on where you're going, it could be someone that's armed there as well. And they had all of these signs, these printouts, about 15 of them, they were saying all of these were confis- uh, confiscated. And um, brass knuckles, someone was going to try to take them on their carry-on. But not only brass knuckles, knives on the carry-on. I'm talking a knife, like Crocodile Dundee uh, <laughs> knife, right? And the, but here's the thing about it. Then other people, 9mm, 38 Special, 45 with ammunition, thinking, hold on a second. And I actually went and talked to them. I said, they actually tried to come through this and carry-on with this. He says, yeah, people are just, they don't get it. Yeah, thank you. They don't. They're thinking they're going to pass through security. Somehow they're thinking, I'll get by. They didn't see it. But the scanner says, beep, beep, sir, may I check your bag? We come into a place of worship, and you can be sitting next to someone, and they can't see your heart. You can speak the language of Christianity, but they may not know whether or not you're a qualified worshiper. The elders don't have any way to say, you come in, you stay out. You come in, you stay out. We can only do as the Levitical priest would have done, make a cry and say, this is God's standard and this is God. And now you must in your own conscience say, yes, I will come with the heart that is right before the Lord. Or maybe according to Matthew 5, as it says, if you're in a place where you're giving alms and you realize your brother has something against you, what are you supposed to do? Go and make it right. Stop. You are not qualified to worship. Make things right with your brother. Then you come back again and be a true, genuine worshiper. I couldn't believe it. They're trying to get to with a nine millimeter with magazines. But with God, with us, we may not know. With God, he will always know. See, that's the question that's presented. And he says, abide. Notice the text. Oh, Lord. So he cries out to the covenant God, Yahweh, who may abide in your tent and dwell on your holy hill? And and there's been much to do about the words and the differences and abiding and dwelling. And I think the best way to simply put it, abide. It means to have a brief stay. So I come into the tent. Remember, at this point, there is no tabernacle. I'm sorry, there's no temple. There's only the tabernacle. So Solomon has not built the temple yet. So the people would come for a period of time. They would abide and they would leave. But it was an act of worship. And then it says dwell. But notice it says dwell on your holy hill. What is he referring to here? I think it's a reference simply to say um, on, at Zion, at Jerusalem, the place that God has called his city. And here dwell, I do believe, means the sense of permanence. 
I want to settle in. Who can visit with the Lord and who can dwell and settle in? And essentially what he's saying, it goes beyond location and it goes to an attitude of the heart. This is an act of worship. He is saying, who can come ultimately into the presence of the Lord? Who are those people that will dwell and settle in and be a genuine worshiper? Are you that person? So the implication of this sense of dwelling is, as I said, beyond Zion, beyond Jerusalem. It is a lifestyle. It's a habit. It's a way of life. It is who we are. It should be all consuming. Because what is going to happen? In several hours, we will all leave our Zion, if you will. And the question is, when you leave here, will you continue to be a what? A worshiper. Worship is who you are. It's a part of you. You remember the engagement with Jesus Christ and the woman at the well in John 4 and what was happening. Uh, The woman at the well presents to Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. You people say there is the place of worship. And our people, the Sumerians, say here is the place of worship. And what did Jesus do? He corrected her statement and he said something that was very profound that has Uh, a great import for all of us who hear now and who have heard through the centuries. He says, no, uh, that is not, it's not location. The father is seeking those who will be worshipers and you shall worship in what spirit and what truth spirit and truth. Don't localize your worship. It is who you are. You take the living God with you. He is abiding in you. And isn't it wonderful? The scripture tells us what he is dwelling in us permanence. So it says, if you want to be a permanent dweller, live a life that reflects that who dwells in you. The one who dwells in you, that is. Um, See, what's the point of location if your heart is somewhere else? I mean, there are people on this campus who are here, but their thoughts, their heart, their affections, their loyalties are somewhere else. And there may be people in this room even that you can have a disposition of, I'll call it disingenuous worship because you're really not here with all your heart. And I'm not talking about sometimes the temporary distractions that we have. And even with some of those temporary distractions, I think we would all do better to make our smartphones dumb phones sometimes. Do you agree? Like hit, you know, cut off the data. Use it, uh, granted, for your Bible verses and to look up things, but turn off notifications. The world will survive if you don't respond to that text message. If you don't glance and say, oh my, the stocks went down. Who is that that's calling me? Give God your what? Heart. So crying out the priests, who may, who may? And you have to answer that question. Even now you have to answer it this very moment. Am I a genuine worshiper of the living God? He is still looking for worshipers, amen? And there's some of you who are confident that you're a genuine worshiper. And then you should glorify God all the more because of this great transformation that has taken place in your life. There's some of you, I know your stories. I can look at your faces now and I know your background and you should be people that say, oh, 
hallelujah, that the Lord God, because I was in chapter well, Psalm 14, I was the fool in his heart who says there is no God. I was a practical atheist, but am I not glad that now I see the light? Amen. And now what should my life be? In active worship, as I continually say to the Lord, thank you. My life should be a testimony unto him. We have to make choices if we're going to be genuine worshipers. But what is worship? I've mentioned the word several times. What is worship? And it's going to be answered by, I'm going to give you six descriptive words. As we're still in verse one, six descriptive words for worship. And as I thought about them here, these are the words that come to mind for me. Number one is recognition, recognition, qualified worshipers, genuine worshipers, understand and accept their rightful place in the world because they do what? They acknowledge God's rightful place as creator. I recognize him as creator. And therefore that sets the scope of my life properly. A person cannot be a genuine worshiper if they do not recognize God's ultimate authority in their life. Word number two is this reverence, reverence. Genuine recognition must naturally do what? It must engender reverence for the object. And the object here is the living God. So I say to myself, if I recognize God for who he is, I look to the heavens. And even as the psalmist may say, the heavens are declaring his glory. And now I see him as the creator. I must have a reverence for him. That is genuine worship. Worship is not flippant. It is not. Worship should be engaging. It's a part of you offering up your soul, if you will, unto the Lord. Here's our third word, commitment. So then genuine reverence leads to commitment to the Lord. It's impossible to claim, it's impossible to claim that one reveres God, but not make a commitment to his cause. I revere you, I recognize you, but I'm not committed to your cause. Hold on a second. How many people in this room are married? Okay. I see a couple of newly, I still call you newly weds. You know, how long has it been now? Eight months. Amen. All right. Today? All right. Ready? All right. There we go. Okay. Great. I'm going to pick on you now. Okay. So now you recognize something. She's cute. So I think I may want to marry her. All right, there you go. Good. Good answer. He said, oh, she's more than cute. I'm, I'm, you owe me for this now. When you stood before people, you said what? And it was different because of, you know, COVID and things like that. You essentially said, I before God and men do what? I'm committed to you. For better, or for worse in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor, until God do us part. Commitment. So a person cannot possibly say, I want to marry you, but not be committed to you. It's, uh, it's a contradictory. Marriage is a commitment, is it not? And that's through thicker and thin. So we cannot say that we are worshipers of God and we have a recognition and a reverence, but not committed to his cause. 
No. Why? Because when we think about commitment to his cause, what is God's ultimate commitment to himself? God's ultimate commitment to himself is for his own glory. Do we agree with that? God wants to glorify himself. And when you think about that, then the mind goes to Ephesians 1. What do we see three times verses 1? I'm sorry, Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14, three times to the praise of his what? To the praise of his what? And to the praise of his glory. And then we see in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul clearly says that you have been bought with a price. Therefore, do what? Glorify God with your Wait a minute. Whose body? Ours. I give it to him. I've been bought with the price. I no longer can make the decisions for my life. I cannot live as an independent creature. This life of autonomy is now over. So I surrender to him in an act of worship. And then the mind goes to 1 Corinthians 10, that we're to do all to the glory of God. All. That was my mom's life verse. Do all to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink and whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Look with me at first Peter chapter four. Another reminder of this sense of worship as commitment, worship as commitment. First Peter four. And then if you will notice, uh, let's look at verse 11. I always love, I should have you turn more. I love the sound of hearing pages in the Bible turn. 4.11, it says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that, notice what it says, in all things God may be what? Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the what? Glory and for how long? And ever. And how does it end? Amen. Here is life. So he says, if you speak the word of God, make the word of God, make sure you do it in his strength that God will be glorified. When you serve, make sure that you serve by the grace of God so that God will be glorified. Because if we're not depending on the Lord, then who is receiving the glory? Mm. Everyone in the Bible who decided to do that, it did not end well for them, did it? Not at all. Don't put your name in that lot. Do it all to the glory of God. And then, if you will, I've been studying, as I had mentioned before, what would I teach next? And I think it is going to be Isaiah 40 to 48. Fascinating, beautiful. I'm loving it. And I've I've gone through it and noting it and talking about it to my own soul. And one thing, one theme is throughout Isaiah 40 to 48. I am he. There is no other. One thing that comes up in Isaiah 40 to 48 is this. I will not share my glory with another. That's commitment. Here's a fourth word, consecration. Consecration. The word means to set aside, and usually it was set aside for religious purpose. God consecrated the priests to worship before him. And we as New Testament people We're a part of a holy nation, a royal what? Priesthood. We're to be consecrated unto him, set aside, apart for service unto him. Here's our fifth word when we think about what is worship. It is recognition. It is reverence. It is commitment. It is consecration. 
But it is also this, it is communion. It is communion. Qualified worshipers have a heartfelt desire to commune with God. Worship without communion is religious activity. To commune with God. To read his word and be fed by it. To commune with God. To pray to the living God. And knowing that he hears your prayers because Jesus Christ has gone before you and made a way. And now you can come to, according to Hebrews chapter 4, the throne of grace and receive help in time of need. To commune with God. To be as the psalmist said. To meditate on God and think about God. And be nourished by that. To commune with God. To enjoy the fellowship of God's people. And that stimulates your own soul to love and good deeds. This is communing with God. If you're not communing with God, you are not a worshiper. You're a religious individual. You are not a qualified worshiper. So the question for you is now in the negative. Here's the sixth word. As we define worship, it is proclamation, proclamation. Qualified worshipers are not silent. See, genuine worshipers desire that others have the same experience as they do. To be one who proclaims the gospel is an act of worship. I will come back from um, Africa as I have other trips and I will be, as they say, dog tired. But it's a good tire. It's to be spent for the Lord. I was uh, actually on a Zoom call. I had to. I was giving Pastor John an update because I'm gone. He's coming back next week, and I said, "Let me update with him." We chatted about some things, and and I was telling him about the trip. And I just isn't it such a great privilege that we have? I'm sitting here, amazing, amazing. How is it that I've studied for several weeks God's Word? How is it that I've met people? And talk with them and try to encourage them. How is it that I'm going to get on a plane? I'm going to go from L.A. to Denver and Denver to Frankfurt and then Frankfurt to Joburg. And then I'm going to fly to Zambia and I'm going to do these. How is it possible? Only by the grace of God. And I will be tired. And I've done these trips before. You remember last year I went. I left actually on Thanksgiving Eve. I'm sorry, evening. We had turkey and my wife dropped me off at the airport at 11.30 p.m. And I caught a 1 a.m. flight. And I went to six countries last year. I came back thoroughly tired. But I worshiped the Lord. Because throughout, I was proclaiming Jesus Christ. Are you a genuine worshiper? Are you qualified to worship? If you are, you cannot be silent. Genuine worshipers are not silent. They may be quiet. But they are not silent. Are we agreed? Second consideration. Go back to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. And the virtue of qualified worshipers. So verses 2 to 5b, we see here, these 10 virtues of those who are qualified to be worshipers. And I need to say from the, from the beginning, 
that the virtues here, they act as qualifiers, but they should also help us identify, as we said before, shortcomings. Where am I falling short in this list? And then now I must make the the appropriate life changes to realign my life with God's desire, with God's intention. Let me illustrate it this way. Recently, you know, I've been pretty active and some of you, you may even saw me this morning when I go on my morning Sunday runs and I, I get out pretty consistently to do that sort of thing. And I was having a problem some months ago. I couldn't run for months and I'm, I'm thinking I'm really getting out of shape here. This is not good. Um, and so I thought I just couldn't get past it. And so um, I had uh, a recommendation actually from my, the good doctor here to go see someone and he looked it out, he looked it over and he said, ah, I think could be this. And he said, well, you need an MRI and um, it, actually two areas for the MRI. And I went, and got it done. But you know what happened? What can happen with an MRI? It can discover things that you don't, you aren't looking for. So there were some things that I wasn't looking for. And he says, you know, you need to take care of this. And in the hip area, there is some degeneration here. And it's, that's because you've been active for all of these years. And there were some other complications. He said, well, I would see your main physician about this area and monitor that. And I thought, oh, my. That's interesting. I didn't go in looking for that. But it was discovered. He thought, we, we're looking for this because here is there's my diagnosis but the MRI was, had, has obviously an ability to do what? Look with such detail. And see, these questions that are going to be presented here are saying, here are the qualifications for worship. They are not comprehensive, but they should spark your spirit, your MRI, if you will. And maybe there's some things in your life that you don't see now, but if you're honest and you're engaged in genuine self-examination, you will say to yourself, soul, there are some areas that need to change. And so I'll take the steps necessary to do it. And everything is in the Lord's hands anyway, right? So what do we know about these people? First category, they strive for a moral standard. Verse 2, what does it say? He who walks with integrity, who works righteousness and speaks with truth in his heart. Um, They have a moral standard. Calvin said that there was no distinction between the sacred and the secular. Why did he make that statement? Because Calvin understood that worship, the Christian life, involves all of life. So the person that's the attorney this is still something that is sacred. The person that's the practicing doctor, this is sacred. The person that's the teacher, the person that's the real estate agent, the person that's the the grade school teacher, whatever it may be, he's saying this is all sacred because you always take the indwelling Christ with you. It is an act of worship. And they strive for, these people strive for this moral standard. See, it is a false dichotomy to try to separate these, tr- these two. These two work together. And in one sense, the psalm is supporting this principle in that David, as he pins this, he is helping them under- us understand, and they would understand that there is no distinction between private 
and public worship. One cannot be a person that come here and we worship and we're exuberant and we seem to be so serious. And then we leave here and we turn on a different life. It can't be that way. How do we know that? Let's begin to work through these qualifications. It is this, and this is the first. Number one, they are people of integrity. They are people of integrity. He who walks with integrity. The ESV says they walk blamelessly. The Net Bible simply says they are blameless. And the psalmist most likely, I think, intended this way. Perhaps he didn't. But in one sense, this virtue of walking with integrity becomes sort of an overarching um, blanket for everything else that's said. Even similar to what Paul does in Titus and Timothy. What is the first qualification for an elder? He must be what? Above reproach. He must be a man of integrity. And everything else sort of bleeds from that. And this, I think, is in part what the psalmist is doing here. Do they walk with integrity? To walk. This idea, uh, the scripture tells us that we walk by the light of the Lord. God's word uh, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Paul says in Ephesians that we're to walk worthy. It is simply saying this is our life. Is it one of integrity? We're to be blameless. I don't have time for it, but Ephesians 1, 4, you would notice we're going to be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 5, 27, he's going to present the church before him holy and blameless. Colossians 1, 22, Hebrews 9, 14, and even in Jude to be blameless before the Lord. And so what we're doing in life is it's what Paul, his sort of approach in his epistles, and already not yet. We are blameless, and we strive to be what? Blameless with men. And the word blameless was a word, and this really helps us a bit, I think, as a word that would have been used for animal sacrifices. They must be what? Blameless before they're brought before the Lord. And this is why Peter says what? Of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. He was without spot and without what? Blemish. So we're striving to be like Christ in this way. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 119.1, it really is the key to the blessed life. Secondly is this, they're people of justice. They work righteousness. They work righteousness. Um, note Psalm 1-5. They are morally upright. No, there's no questions about their ethics. They're consistent. Here is a third consideration, the third qualifier, if you will. There are people of trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. Notice in the latter part of verse two and speaks truth in the heart. I wanted you to see something that is contrasting. Go back to Psalm four. Notice Psalm four. I'm sorry. Psalm 14. Psalm 14 says what? The fool has said in his what? Heart. Now in contrast in Psalm 15, the righteous qualified leaders, those are genuine worshipers. Now in their heart, they speak truthfully in the heart the seed of human emotions, the seed of decision-making. But yet it's possible that we do it with integrity. All of life should be one of integrity. Here's a second heading. 
Verse 3, notice it. They avoid offending. They avoid offending. How do we know that? Notice verse 3a. It says, he does not slander with his tongue. So they are, they are not people who attack with the tongue. They do not attack with the tongue. So why that wording? Because what's interesting about the word slander, we see it throughout. Uh, the devil is a slanderer. Proverbs consistently talks about those who would slander. He would murder even his friend, his brother. And one reason the idea of attacking with the tongue is the way I worded it that way, because literally it means to put a foot to the tongue. What does that mean? Because what what, what is communicated by the language is not only are you a slanderer, but why is this sort of literal kind of um, uh, meaning come out? He's saying you are a person who does what? You go about doing what? Slandering people. That's why it's sort of foot to the tongue, if you will. You go about and you're spreading rumors about people and you're slandering people. You're not idle. Because in one sense, if a person had an opinion about an individual, they might keep it to themselves. But he's saying you're not that way. You cannot be that way if you're a genuine worshiper. You go about with your feet spreading slander. Have you ever been slandered before? It's a hurtful thing, isn't it? And is something about you ever spread? And it can be like a wildfire, can't it? And don't you think that's in part why James said the tongue is a what? I mean, who can tang it? It is a what? It's a fire. How many people in churches, let's not talk about the world. That's expected from the world. How many people in churches have been hurt and damaged because of the, the tongue? So he says, you cannot be a qualified worshiper if you go about slandering people. Not possible. Leviticus 19.16, you should not go about as a slander among your people and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Um, so Walter Riley, I just quickly give you this quote. The sixth commandment states that we shall not kill, scandalizing one's neighbor with false and malicious reports, whereby I vex his spirit and consequently impair his health is a degree of murder, he says. Proverbs twenty five twenty three says that a, bite, a backbiting tongue and an ignorant countenance go together. Here's another qualification. They are not people who harm others. The second part of verse 3. They're not people who harm others. David uses a strong word. He says, nor does evil to his neighbor. And simply that you, you damage him, you harm him. You cannot be a qualified worshiper if you're that sort of person. Here's another qualification. Look at the latter part of verse three. There are not people who unjustly criticize others, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So you're not one, if you're obviously not slandering, you're, you're not going to do evil. You cannot possibly be a person who hears a reproach on a friend. You cannot take it in. You cannot hear it. And that's why some of these conversations that even some of you have experienced, and let's just be very practical about this for a moment. If someone would have said to that person, 
I'm not going to hear you anymore. And when they go to the next person, I'm not going to hear you anymore. And they go to the next person, I'm not going to hear you anymore. Then what are they to do? There's no demand for the slander. And we see in society, it seems like some people, they make their entire life is slandering people. I mean, I think about a dear pastor. Oh, my goodness, what the man has been through over the years and the opinions that people have about him. And some of it has been slanderous information. And it's to be expected, as I said before, from the world. But when it happens, quote, within and surely loosely quoting and referencing evangelicals, it's an amazing thing. Notice verse four. They maintain a moral standard. We look around us and we see this declining standard in the world and it's disheartening, but yet it's even prophetic because God's word said that this is the way of the world. And if you're going to be a qualified worshiper, they are people who reject the insolent. You reject the insolent. Notice verse four in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. So there's some sense in which we can have a righteous indignation against those who are not favorable towards the Lord and the things of the Lord. We serve ungodly leaders. And we can have a righteous indignation towards them. And what he's saying is, if there's someone whose lifestyle is contrary, that person should be despised in your eyes. And this is why um, the word of God tells us when it comes to the world, we're not to love the world or the things in the world. Why? Because they're hostile towards us. But notice verse 4, 4b. But yet they are people who support the honorable, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Qualified worshipers are those who accept those who would fear God, and they honor them, they support them, they pray for them, they are behind them. They are not a person who is given to a person based on their station in life. And this is what James condemns in James 2, 1 to 7. Because we may pay attention to one person and not the other, but we're not to show that sort of favoritism. We show the only favoritism we have are those that fear God. Here's another qualification. There are people who hold their convictions. There are people who hold their convictions. Notice Verse 4c, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does this mean? When it says swears to his own hurt, it means that the man or the woman has made a vow. They've, they've made a promise. And now he realizes, oh, if I keep that promise, it is going to be injurious to me. I'm going to lose. Maybe it's even a business deal. My profit is not going to be there. And he says, no, you have made it. You keep to it, even if you're hurt by it. Those are qualified worshipers. Um, it is said, a man's word is his what? Is his bond. I said it and I will stand by it. Here's a f- final thought about qualifications. They avoid exploitation. Verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. So they don't gouge the needy. They don't gouge the needy. 
are usury. The NIV 84 and the New King James says usury. Um, and it means that you're taking advantage of those that have a need and you give out their money, but you're, you are charging an interest. So it damages them. And the word to charge interest is a word that actually means it could be literally, you don't give out your money with a bite because the word was used actually of a serpent that would bite someone. And why this imagery of a biting serpent? Because the person already has a need. They've fallen on hard times. You lend them the money and then you're charging 22% interest on it. And then you say there's a balloon payment on it as well. If you don't meet it, it says no, unacceptable. Um, it is forbidden, Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20, God says, no, you shall not do this to your people. A host of other scriptures, it said. Look at with me, if you will, or just listen. Deuteronomy 16, 19, it says, you shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial and you shall not take a bribe for a man, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of justice. That's not a qualified worshiper, which is really leads into this thought here. He does not, or they do not sell their character. They don't sell their character. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. They don't sell their character. People are for sale. I was in a conversation with someone yesterday who has friends that are in Washington, some very, very high up. And he was giving me a rundown of the conversation he had with them. And I was kind of sick at the end of the conversation. My word. I mean, you, in one sense, you know it's happening. You think it's happening. And every once in a while, you hear that it is in fact happening. But here in this conversation, bribery everywhere. Favors everywhere. Taking advantage of the needy. In the sense where we say you have to know someone. Oh my, to the nth degree. God says that distorts justice. But here's another thought. Some people will sell their character and then they sell their soul. Listen to this. Last week, I talked with you about some people who were contrasting life because they were fools in their heart. MF Rich, atheist. Listen to his words. He says, I would rather lie on a stove and broil for a million years than to go into eternity with eternal horrors that hang over my soul. I have given my immortality for gold and its weight sinks me in an endless, hopeless, helpless hell. This is why Jesus Christ said, are you going to be like the fool who built his life where? In the sand, or the one who built it on a rock. So I have all the gold in the world, but I've lost my soul. And his words, they're endless, hopeless, helpless hell. The last thought, a couple minutes, I'll, I'll free you, I promise. I can't come back next week because I'm gone. <laughs> The promise of qualified worshipers. There's a promise in the end. He who does these things will never be shaken. Amen. What things? The 10 virtues, the list. 
If you do these things, you won't be shaken. You won't be upended. Uh, the word in its form has this sense that you, you won't stagger, is what he's saying. There will be security in life. It was William Plummer who said this. He says, religion without morality is monstrous. It has no countenance in scripture. It's monstrous. The scripture is clear. Who will see the Lord? Without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Here's a final thought for you. A final thought. Christ, we can say it this way, qualified through Christ. In the end, (laughs) you look at this list, and in some ways we have maybe violated some of this. In some level. Has anyone ever quote, as we say, a white lie? Has anyone ever had any animosity towards his brother or sister? And remember, this is not comprehensive. All we have to say is this. Here's the reality. The scripture is clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How do we become ultimately qualified? It is only through Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus Christ. We may look at this list and say, I'm doing really well overall. But it's only through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice will you be qualified. And you can be religious and you can be here. You can be on this campus. But without Christ, you even like B.F. Rich will face an endless, hopeless, helpless hell. But with Christ. One day you will see his face. Amen. And he will say to you, well done, that good and qualified servant. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your word you give us. Your grace. Help us to worship you. And where we fall short, we are thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ, spotless and blameless, paying for our sins. Amen.